Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 24, Leviticus chapters 16 and 17. Last week, we uh, looked at Leviticus chapter 16 that covered the topic of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And I'd, I'd like to flesh that out a little further this week, especially since we're only a few days from the beginning of the High Holy Days. And then we're going to begin chapter 17 of Leviticus. You know, the, the, the need for Yom Kippur can probably be summed up in these few words. The law made nothing perfect. The law teaches us God's commands and his laws, what he has determined to be evil and good, and the great need that we have to make peace with him. The law pulls back that veil on our sin and the evil inclination that is within every man and it makes that sin as exposed as serot on the skin of the afflicted, which is every human ever born. The law gives us the path to righteous living. It gives us a path to the blessings that flow from it. But it also warns us of the alternative. Disobedience, rebellion, and the consequences of the curses of the law. Choosing one direction brings life. Choosing the other direction, death. But the law did not provide for justification. It did provide a remedy for some sins, but only certain kinds, not all. It also did not perfect. what, And, and Yeshua said that this is what was necessary for all to be saved. Matthew 5.48 Therefore be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let me say that again so there can be no, mis no mistake. The law was perfect but its purpose was not to perfect. Okay. That would be Yeshua's mission. Therefore, in the covenant of the law, there was not a perfect mediator in Moses. Nor was there a perfect priesthood, nor a perfect atonement of sacrifice to cover sin. Instead, the ritual sacrifices and the cleansings had to go on day after day, year after year. And even so, sin and uncleanliness abounded. Okay. So much so that iniquity piled up in people and defilement soiled the very tabernacle of God as well as all the holy ritual instruments, even the brazen altar itself. Once every year it fell to the high priest to take an enormous risk by entering the most restricted area of the holy sanctuary, the holy of holies. And there he would set about cleansing that place and its furnishings. This yearly appointed time 
was called Yom Kippur. And so well understood among the people was its awesome importance that it gained the nickname of the Great Day, or simply even the Day. Yom Kippur takes place on the tenth day of the seventh month of the biblical Hebrew religious cycle, calendar. Even the number of the month and of the day is significant. The seventh month is the Sabbath month. The seven biblical feasts occur over a period of seven months. The first month brings us Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. The seventh month, Rosh Hashanah, then ten days later, Yom Kippur, then five days after that, Sukkot, and the culmination of the Sabbath cycle of the seven religious festivals. The number of the day of Yom Kippur is ten, the tenth day of the month. Ten is the biblical number of completion. Completion in the sense of fullness, not in something ending. So this national cleansing, this cleansing of the whole congregation that was brought about by Yom Kippur, and this cleansing of the place where God dwelled on earth was critical because if the defilement became too great, the Lord could no longer dwell among his people and his presence would have to leave in order that his ineffable holiness be protected. And as I've taught you on numerous occasions, only the clean can approach God. Only the clean are even eligible for holiness. If Israel had any hope of standing before the Lord, the rituals of Yom Kippur had to be carried out. Exactly. Somehow, though, over the centuries, the rabbis began to twist the purpose of Yom Kippur. The biggest changes occurring after the temple was destroyed. It turned from being a national event to more or less an individual one. It turned from being a day of cleansing more to a day of judgment. The rabbis now teach that on the day of atonement, a worshiper's fate for the next year is sealed. He is either forgiven and his name is written in the book of life, or he's not forgiven and his name is omitted. Therefore, during the ten days leading up to Yom Kippur, beginning on Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, the rabbis also teach that the people of Israel are to be especially penitent. They are to sincerely repent of their sins. Think on them greatly during those ten days. This is a time of great sobriety. Even weddings cannot be held during this ten-day time period. Now, originally, scripturally, even though Yom Kippur was indeed a solemn time, it was also marked with joy due to knowing that if the high priest did his job, then all of Israel's sins would be forgiven. And a custom developed, even in Jesus' era, where the Jewish maidens, meaning unmarried girls of a marrying age, would wear all white garments and they'd all go up to the vineyards where they would dance together 
Of course, the single men would also show up as well and see if they could spot a, spot a future bride among them. Now, Leviticus 16 instructs that all worshipers are to afflict themselves at the time of Yom Kippur. This means to fast, to abstain from pleasurable things like having sex or drinking wine. And the purpose was for people to be humbled before God, recognizing their need for Him as the life creator and sustainer. And the ceremonies began by the high priest offering a sacrifice of purification for himself and then one for the people. And this is significant because, as I said at the outset, the priesthood of the law was not a perfect priesthood because it employed imperfect people. Even the high priest needed atonement for his sins and cleansing. Otherwise, he would be too defiled to perform his duties. Uh, On this day, Yom Kippur, unlike all others, he would dress in special all-white garments. His golden garments, as they were called, that was his normal high priestly attire when on duty, was set aside for this one day per year. The white symbolized purity, humility, even in a sense, they were also sometimes referred to as slaves' clothes. There were many sacrifices offered on that day, but maybe the most peculiar and at the same time spectacular was the scapegoat ritual. Two goats were chosen, and one of them, by lot, was designated to be slaughtered and sacrificed on the brazen altar. The other one would be sent out into the Judean wilderness alive, symbolically loaded up with all the sin and uncleanness of the nation of Israel that had accumulated from the previous year. Now the sacrifice for the priesthood was a mature bull, the most expensive of all sacrifices. And upon that bull, the high priest would lay his hands, Seneca, and transfer all the guilt and sin of the priesthood, including himself, onto that innocent substitute. Later in the day, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies carrying a vessel filled with blood. And this would happen three times. Some of the blood was from the bull, some would be from the slaughtered scapegoat. And with great fear and trepidation, the high priest entered through the outer veil, went through the holy place, and then stood before that inner veil. The priests and the worshippers watch anxiously as they see, would this maybe be the last that they ever see that high priest alive. Because maybe he wouldn't reemerge. Maybe his sacrifice wouldn't be accepted by God. Maybe the high priest would never come out, meaning he'd been struck dead. And the people would now be forced to live in their sin until this same time next year. The parochet, the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place would be carefully folded back by the high priest 
And there before him stood the Ark of the Covenant with the folded wings of the cherubim rising out of its lid called the mercy seat. And the high priest then would take blood from this golden vessel and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the ark, cleansing the place. Using his finger, the high priest would sprinkle the blood towards the ark, upward, then downward. He performed this cycle of up and down precisely seven times, even counting out loud as he did it to be sure. One time too many, one time too few, and the ritual was ruined. Now, although I don't have time to go into great detail, during this time the parochette and the furnishings of the holy place, that outer room, were also cleansed with blood. Thus, at the end of the day, the sanctuary of God, the temple, the tabernacle, was once again purged of uncleanness and it would be suitable for God to inhabit. Yet neither the lay worshippers nor the regular priests had the privilege of even watching the high priest perform his task within the dark confines of that sanctuary. Now, however, it would be time for that second half of the scapegoat ritual, whereby the high priest would tie a scarlet cloth between the horns of the goat. And he'd present the goat to the public. Then he'd lay his hands on the goat. And he'd do this in the temple courtyard. He would do this with the authority of being the current mediator for Israel, thereby representing all the people of Israel. And laying both of his hands on the head of that scapegoat, the high priest would say, O Yehovah, they have committed iniquity. They have transgressed. They have sinned. Thy people, the house of Israel, O then, Yehovah, cover over, I entreat thee, upon their iniquities, upon their transgressions and their sins, which they have wickedly committed and transgressed and sinned before thee. Thy people, the house of Israel. As it is written in the law of Moses, thy servant, saying, For on that day shall it be covered over for you, to make you clean from all your sins before Yehovah, you shall be cleansed. Then that innocent goat, now burdened with all the sins of Israel, was led out through the eastern gate over an arched bridge that used to exist that went across the Kidron Valley onto the Mount of Olives. And from there, a designated person would lead the goat out into the desert wilderness that lay to the south of Jerusalem. It's most interesting that even though the scriptures don't ordain it, tradition eventually developed, interestingly enough, that unlike in this picture, a Gentile, if you can imagine, was assigned as the one who would lead the goat into the wilderness to a rocky precipice, back the goat up to the edge, and then push it off, ensuring that the goat died. And this was because all of Israel's sin was on that goat and they sure didn't want it coming back. Now I need to bring this to a close 
So allow me to sum it up. While I'm not necessarily arguing with the traditions that developed around Yom Kippur, we can see that both good symbolism and bad has developed over the centuries. Nowhere do the scriptures say that the scapegoat that was set loose in the wilderness was to be pushed over a cliff or killed. Nowhere does it say that anyone, let alone a Gentile, was to lead that goat to a rocky precipice and push it over. Nowhere does scripture say that the purpose of Yom Kippur is to see if a person's name can be written year to year into the divine book of life. And certainly nowhere can it be that Yom Kippur or any of the biblical feasts are properly and fully conducted without the existence of the holy temple and the priesthood. So for today, for anybody in our era to judge another on how it is that they go about celebrating the biblical feasts or accusing one another of not being properly Torah observant on such a matter is frankly quite disingenuous. That does not mean that we should not do what we can outside of what a temple and a priesthood of the temple were uniquely ordained to do that we observe God's appointed times. We We should certainly do that. You know, more than ever before in my life I see that Christianity has abandoned God's appointed times. And we need to be those who do what we can to reinstitute those observances. You know, it's very troubling to know that for about the last 500 years in the existence of the temple, that even then the Yom Kippur ritual was not conducted properly. How can I know this for certain? Because the Ark of the Covenant had gone missing since the Babylonian exile. The high priest on the Day of Atonement was actually going into an empty Holy of Holies. No Ark, no mercy seat, no presence of God. It is well recorded that the high priest during those final five centuries that the temple stood was actually sprinkling blood on the floor at the spot where the ark used to sit. I can draw no other conclusion than that the people of Israel did not have their iniquities covered over as a congregation for those five centuries. They had the opportunity when Yeshua came and all but a handful rejected that opportunity. But here's some good news. That imperfect high priest, priesthood, imperfect man-made sanctuary and those imperfect sacrifices have been transformed and fulfilled by the one who is perfect. Okay? The perfect law has finally been perfectly followed. The Messiah Yeshua is the perfect mediator. He is the sinless high priest who never had to have his sins atoned for. He is the ideal innocent sacrifice that can atone 
for every sin and all sin. His sacrifice is so perfect and complete that it only had to occur once, not over and over again. Yet just as that scapegoat ritual required two goats, and one was slaughtered and the other released, so Yeshua has accomplished some of Yom Kippur's purpose at his advent, and he will accomplish the remainder at his second and future coming. He became the sacrificial goat that atoned once for all of his worshippers 2,000 years ago. But all Israel has not yet been saved. And as we have been told directly by Jesus, and as it was expounded upon by Paul in Romans 11, Yeshua's priority was Israel. In his soon return, he will save Israel from its earthly and spiritual enemies and bring them to peace with God. I have no doubt that the seven biblical feasts point entirely to the redemptive work of Messiah. Every one of them. I further have no doubt that they will occur in the season they were ordained to occur. The spring and summer festivals, the first four, have already been fulfilled. We await the fulfillment now of the three fall festivals, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Let's move on now to Leviticus chapter 17. Now, Leviticus chapter 17 is going to answer many questions and set the stage for much of what's going to happen in the entire rest of the Bible. And we're going to have several foundational concepts introduced to us in uh, chapter 17. And I hope you'll give me all your attention because what you get from this is going to aid you greatly in your general Bible study. Now, this chapter... 17 plus the next nine chapters of Leviticus is what scholars now call the holiness code. And the general idea is that the entire nation of Israel bears the responsibility to respond to God having separated and blessed them above all other people on earth. And the expected response from them was that they conduct their lives in a holy manner. In chapter 19, verse 2, we find this admonition to the nation of Israel. You shall be holy, for I, Jehovah, your God, am holy. Now, while we could say that most of Leviticus up to this point has been directed primarily to the newly established priesthood, these nine chapters are addressed to every level of lay Israeli society, even down to foreigners, to non-Israelites who live among Israel. This is something that we as Christians should make note of because just as we saw in the previous chapter concerning Yom Kippur, it was not only the physical 
genealogical descendants of Jacob who found themselves under the requirements, blessings, and curses of the laws of Moses, but even those who chose to sojourn among Israel. Let's be clear about whom we're talking about here. As the time frame of Leviticus is about a year after Israel left Egypt, how is it that they already have multitudes of foreigners living with them? I mean, did the attraction of living out in the desert in tents and eating manna three times a day, having no idea exactly how this was all going to turn out, just overwhelm those who heard about it and they just had to come and join them? I don't think so. If you recall in Exodus 12, 38, we're told that a mixed multitude of people marched along with Israel out of Egypt. Now, I, I have no idea how many is in a multitude. But the word itself implies that it was a pretty big number. And as a result, we find that many of God's laws and commands specifically address these foreigners from Egypt who at some level or another have joined Israel. Now, not all of these foreigners became official Israelites, but some did. Some had other reasons for throwing in, throwing in with Moses' mob right, that, that, than just to become Israelites. I mean, I suspect that a significant portion of them represented intermarriages that had occurred between Egyptian families and Hebrew families. After all, we are told in the Bible that while the bulk of Israel lived in the land of Goshen, in Egypt. A great many Hebrews had moved into other regions of Egypt. And since their stay in Egypt was so long, around four centuries, it's pretty easy to imagine the assimilation of a significant number of Jacob's descendants into traditional Egyptian society and even vice versa. Now, other people and tribes, including Egyptians, and very likely several Semitic, meaning people who had come from Noah's son, Shem, but they weren't, weren't Hebrews, right? people who had personally witnessed and survived this awesome wrath and power of the God of Israel down there in Egypt decided that they wanted to enjoy the benefits of being part of this group who God, whose God possessed such mastery over the weather and the animal kingdom and the Nile River, all right, even death. So when we picture just what this enormous group of refugees in the wilderness consisted of, we need to include a substantial amount of non-Hebrews, foreigners, in that makeup. Now, now that fact has a direct translation to our day. Now, I've demonstrated this principle over and over again in this class and I shall never cease to do so until all the church understands it. Okay. What has enabled those of us who are physical Gentiles to be saved is that we benefit by receiving the blessings of God's covenants made with Israel. 
And how do we appropriate that benefit that by birth is not ours? By being grafted in. By being grafted into Israel. Is this a separate action from accepting Yeshua, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior? No. It happens, though we're unaware of it, when we become redeemed. When Gentiles are redeemed, we are joined to Israel, or more accurately, to Israel's covenants. We, we don't physically transform into racial Jews. Rather, we are joined to Israel on a more spiritual level in the same way that we're brought into union with Jesus Christ in a spiritual way. We're not joined to Messiah physically. Rather, it is by spirit, by means of the spirit that were joined to him. Just as those foreigners, that mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt, who threw in with Israel when they left Egypt, just as that mixed multitude benefited and were blessed right alongside their Hebrew friends by the God of Israel, so it is with Gentile believers today. You're going to find in the Torah that it's not that those foreigners were required to join Israel by giving up all their traditions and customs and adopting Hebrew culture. It is that they had to submit to the Hebrew God and to the authority of the government that he created. They didn't have to say, well, we were Edomites, but today we fully renounce our heritage and become Hebrews. That isn't how it worked. Now, this is such an important principle to drink in because if this is not the case, if Gentile believers are not grafted into Israel and their covenants, then indeed the Torah and the Old Testament is unimportant and irrelevant for born-again believers. But I would also go so far as to say that the New Testament becomes irrelevant as well because the entire subject matter of the New Testament is but the fulfillment of the Older Testament's prophecies concerning the Messiah. Okay, Open your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11. Romans chapter 11 beginning at verse 13. Now, in this part of Romans, Paul is speaking to Gentiles. How do I know he's speaking to Gentiles? Because he says so. Let's read Romans eleven thirteen through through thirty one. Is Paul speaking? Paul says, "In that case, I say, <laughs> isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away?" Heaven forbid. Quite the contrary, it is by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling 
Israel's is bringing riches to the world that is if Israel's being placed temporarily in the condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter how much greater riches uh, will Israel and its fullness bring then however to those of you who are Gentiles I say this since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles I make known the importance of my work and the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them because if they're casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world what will their accepting him mean? It'll be life from the dead. Now if the hollow offered as first fruits is holy so is the whole loaf and if the root is holy so are the branches but if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you will say branches were broken off so that I can be grafted in? True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. But you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified because if God did not spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in. Because God's able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own tree? Because, brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed but now it's revealed so that you won't imagine you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness. And that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov, Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. With respect to the good news, they, Israel, are hated for your sake. But with respect to being chosen, they're loved for the patriarch's sake. For God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you yourselves were disobedient to God but before, uh, before, but have received so much mercy now because of Israel's disobedience, so also Israel has been disobedient now so that by your showing them the same mercy that God has shown you, they too may now receive God's mercy. For God has shut up all mankind together in disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. Paul says that we're grafted into Israel and their covenants. 
Being part of Israel is by definition being part of the covenants. You can't be part of Israel apart from the covenants because what makes Israel Israel are the covenants that they have with Jehovah. So what we are reading when we study the Torah has much significance for any and all who profess to be disciples of Messiah Yeshua. That being the case, I think I also think that we can in some ways make the Torah come along come alive in our lives a little more. Make it far more personal and real if we can just insert ourselves into the roles of those foreigners who left Egypt and were now living in their tents alongside Israel. Even more so, as a result of our position in Christ, we are those foreigners who became full-fledged citizens of Israel. We're not required to give up our Gentileness. We're not required to become racial or physical or national or religious Jews. But we are required to live within the terms of their covenants. Because only within their covenants exists the basis for the atonement that Christ offers to anyone who will trust him. Open your Bibles now to Leviticus chapter 17. We're going to read it all. Leviticus chapter 17. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel. Tell them that this is what Adonai has ordered. When someone from the community of Israel slaughters an ox, lamb, or goat inside or outside the camp without bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Adonai before the tabernacle of Adonai. He is to be charged with blood. He has shed blood. And that person is to be cut off from the people. The reason for this is so that the people of Israel will bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice out in the field so that they will bring them to Adonai, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to the priests, and sacrifice them as peace offerings to Adonai. The priests will splash the blood against the altar of Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting and make the fat go up in smoke as a pleasing aroma for Adonai. No longer will they offer sacrifices to goat demons before whom they prostituted themselves. This is a permanent regulation for them all through their generations. Also tell them, when someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice without bringing it to the tent, or rather to the entrance of the tent of Mesim to sacrifice it to Adonai, that person is to be cut off from the people. When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you eats any kind of blood, I will set myself against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. 
For it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. This is why I told the people of Israel, none of you is to eat blood, nor is any foreigner living with you to eat blood. When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you hunts and catches game, whether animal or bird that may be eaten, he is to pour out its blood, cover it over with earth. For the life of every creature, its life, its, or rather its blood is its life. Therefore, I said to the people of Israel, you're not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. Whoever eats it will be cut off. Anyone eating an animal that dies naturally or is torn to death by wild animals, whether he is a citizen or a foreigner, is to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He'll be unclean until evening. Then he'll be clean. But if he doesn't wash them or bathe his body, he'll bear the consequences of his wrongdoing. Well, as we see in verse 2, what is about to follow is addressed to all Israel. Every level of Israeli society. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, we get this foundational instruction. And permit me to paraphrase. No domesticated living creatures, animals, are to be ritually slaughtered outside of the tabernacle courtyard. In other words, this rule is about domesticated, not wild, animals. And if you'll notice, the animals mentioned are the clean ones, the ones that can be used for both sacrifice and food. When it comes to the subject of meat, offerings to God and meat used for food carry the same restrictions. Now, don't trivialize what we just read here because not only is it an instruction concerning holiness, it has tremendous societal impact. Because essentially, it's saying here to Israel that all domestic animals that will be used as a meat source must first be offered as a sacrifice. And by the way, this will change upon entering the promised land. They must be ritualistically slaughtered and offered to God in the precise manner accorded to each of the carefully constructed kinds of Levitical sacrifices. This means that for the average Israelite or foreigner that lived among them, meat was a pretty rare treat. And they only got to keep a portion of each animal that was killed. The remainder was burned up on the altar and in some cases that which wasn't burned up was given to the priests as their portion. Not only did this make eating meat expensive, it made it a royal pain. Because every time a family wanted meat, they had to take an animal to the tabernacle, wait their turn in line, which was probably a very lengthy line, to have a priest officiate the rites and the slaughter of that animal. Okay. Further, that animal had to be an unblemished one. It had to be of the finest quality. Now, short as Leviticus 17 is, it is just chock full of things that we really need to pay careful attention to. Because it's going to explain much of what Israeli society was like back then. 
It's also going to explain many issues that are dealt with later on in the New Testament. And besides the fact that domestic animals had to be slaughtered under any circumstances at the tabernacle and first offered for a sacrifice, we also see what happens as a penalty to those who disobey that commandment of God. That person will be cut off from among God's people. Now, notice in verse 3 that it states that one cannot get around this ritual slaughtering provision simply by removing the animal to outside the camp to kill it. This is not something that is only about maintaining a state of purity within the precinct of Israel. Even more, the, the level of seriousness of this particular disobedience in God's eyes is detailed in verse 4. There it says that blood, or what it means is blood guilt, being guilty of blood guilt, shall be imputed to the man who does such a thing as to slaughter an animal, a domestic animal, only for food. So what does this mean? Right. What, what, what does blood or blood guilt mean? This means that the offense is the equivalent of murder in God's eyes. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, let's, let's look at this term cut off huh, and see what that meant in biblical times. Cut off meant that it was understood that someone has rebelled against God and as a result God's judgment is going to be visited upon that person. We're going to find cut off, though, used in many different contexts and situations in the Holy Scriptures, and each has a little different nuance. For one thing, being cut off for trespassing against one of God's commands doesn't necessarily happen immediately. It simply means that something is going to happen to you in time, as part of God's justice for your act of rebellion. So you run around with this sentence hanging over your head. Often for years and years. You know it's coming. Something bad is coming. But you just don't know what. You don't know when. You don't know how. It'll be in God's timing and God's way. The punishment doesn't necessarily involve the, phys the physical death of the perpetrator. Or at least his immediate physical death. Most often, cut off in the Old Testament meant that a person would not live out his normal human lifespan. And since there was no concept of dying and going to heaven in those days, in fact, the Psalms and most Old Testament discussions on the matter of death simply talk about going down to Sheol, the grave, as but a man's natural end to existence. What the Israelites looked forward to was to dying of a ripe old age. Okay. Being cut off generally meant your life was cut short. This particular aspect of being cut off was regularly prescribed for wicked people. But being cut off could at times take the form also of being expelled from the community of Israel. In modern religious terms, excommunication. 
And at times it also seemed to carry the sense of being permanently separated from your ancestors. Now, what that meant to them was that an afterlife, which was a very hazy and undefined thing to begin with back in that day, it was already very hard to put your finger on just what was going to happen to them in their minds. But to be cut off, for sure, didn't help you in your afterlife, so they sure didn't want it. In rabbinical literature, the Hebrew word for cut off is karet. K-A-R-E-T. Karet. And karet carries with it this concept of death at the hands of heaven. So, first and foremost, this was seen as a divine punishment. Okay? And the punishment didn't necessarily even end with the death of the violator. Or even affect him directly. Instead, this could even be carried over his punishment into one of his descendants. It was thought that even one of his children could die as a result. So, the idea that we've all heard about in the Bible whereby the sins of the father are visited upon even the third and fourth generation you've heard that statement this is but an extension and an example of karet cut off in action karet could even mean that one's family line might come to a complete end I mean perhaps a punishment Worse than death. Since there was this notion among the ancients that in a very real way, your essence, your, your life spirit continued on in your descendants. So if you had no descendants, if your family line was cut off, you had no hope of an afterlife, whatever it was it amounted to. Now let's digress for a minute and talk about the crime of blood or also called blood guilt in Hebrew the, the phrase is shafah dam shafah to shed dam blood to shed blood okay. so more literally the crime of blood means shed blood here in Leviticus it revolves around improper and non-sanctioned killing of domesticated animals. More usually, it's a synonym for murder in the Bible. The unjustifiable killing of a human being. Now, back in Genesis 9, we found that Noah was given the okay to kill creatures for food, which was a biblical first. Okay. Let's take a peek at that verse that authorized this because it answers specifically some questions that are too often just assumed not to even be answered, but are perhaps only hinted at in Scripture. Don't you have to turn there, I'll read it to you. I'm going to read to you the first six verses of Genesis 9. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear and of you and the terror of you shall be upon the beasts of the earth and every bird in the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they're given. 
Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Once you shall not eat, uh, oh, rather, pardon me, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, because in the image of God he made man. So, why are the animals of earth going to fear men? Because they needed to have that instinctual fear of men put into them for preservation of their species. Apparently, before the flood, animals, most of them anyway, had little if any fear of man. And as a footnote, this explains maybe why Noah didn't have to be a real Pied Piper to get all those animals into the ark. Few, if any, had any real fear of him. Now, God didn't put that instinctive fear into them, apparently, when he created them. After all, for the first time in the history of the world, after the flood, Yehovah had given man permission to eat other living creatures. Which means, of course, man now had a license to kill other living creatures. Whereas up to that time, he didn't. Now, up to now, up to this point in Genesis 9, as it explains, it was green plants that had been handed over to God as his official food source. As much as it depresses me to think about it, man was apparently created to be a vegetarian. Now, one other thing. Genesis 9, verse 5 says that from every beast I will require it. That is, that God will require that beast's life for killing other life that has blood in it. We also see that apparently the animals up to that point were vegetarians. So God didn't put a spell on the animals that were locked up in the ark all, the, all those months such that they didn't want to kill and eat Noah or his family, or each other, it appears that they had no instinct at that moment to do this. Now let me be very clear here. Then we'll close out tonight. The timeline of what foods could be eaten looks something like this. Beginning with Adam and Eve, and up to Noah and the great flood, animals were not to be killed for food. But animals, presumably clean domestic animals, were killed for sacrificing, and it would seem reasonable that the skins from those animals were used for some time as clothing, maybe for tents, maybe to hold liquids. Up to the flood, men were supposed to be vegetarians. Okay. Did some men, perhaps many, disobey that instruction? Probably. After the flood, God gave Noah and his family, the only people left on earth, the instructions that they could kill animals and eat meat. Why? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say. 
been a lot of interesting speculations about it. But the Bible doesn't directly tell us. Interestingly, the range of animals they could eat seems at this point, point of Noah, to be without restriction. In other words, there was no mention of clean or unclean as far as the selection of animals for food. Yet it may have been that it was understood that man was only to eat those things that had been up to this point suitable for sacrificing. And God certainly had already classified animals for sacrifice into the clean and unclean. But I just can't find an indication that man had any restrictions as of this time of Genesis 9 placed on meat as food. So it appears that man could eat any living creature starting immediately after the great flood and that was in effect up until God gave Moses the Torah on Mount Sinai about 1200 years or so after the great flood. Then on Mount Sinai, God gave explicit instructions concerning the eating of living creatures and he divided them into clean and unclean food for men. I think we'll stop here for the night and we're going to take up this chapter and the matter of blood again next time.